This is our last Sunday for the year, and I just wanted to say on behalf of me and, and myself, um, just what a delight it's been to hang out with you for a year. It's been really, really lovely, so thanks for being you guys. It's been really nice, and I'll miss you over the little break, even though I'll see lots of you anyway, set up closer TV cameras around the place. So, um, Yeah. So today we're just going to do a little bit of a of a um, recap summary and um, talk about uh, what we've discovered over the last I don't know eight weeks or however long we've been doing this mini series called something worth singing about. For those of you who weren't here for the start of it or um, chose not to listen, which is um, fair enough. Uh, we've been taking a second look at Advent, and uh, what we, as we were kind of developing this series, we realized that singing carols, ironically, is really, really easy, um, but for some of us, finding um, uh, singing them with gusto, singing them um, with some sense of actual connection and meaning um, can be really difficult, because um, we, you know, lots of them are really insipid <laughs> and saccharine, um, but in the story, we think there's some real beauty. So we thought we'd spend a few weeks together having a dig around, um, a, a good rummage, and finding uh, what in the story is really worth singing about. With the hope that come Christmas Eve, when we actually have a carol service to sing, um, not only would we be able to be able to sing them um, loudly, but with gusto as well, with some sense of connection to the story that sits behind um, carols, the story um, of, Ad- of Advent. And... I was watching a movie recently and uh, listened to a sermon in the movie, which I thought was just incredibly profound. Um, it's a film called Hunt for the Builder People, and there is a bit of a spoiler alert in that someone dies in the film. Um, it happens early on, so I won't wreck the whole film for you. Um, <laughs> but um, Taika Waititi, who's the my favorite New Zealand director, if you haven't seen Boy um, or um, What We Do in the Shadows, um, or um, any of his films, definitely have a watch. They're absolutely remarkable. But um, th- this one is based on a um, Barry Crump novel, who's a um, famous New Zealand author who writes lots of stories about the wilderness and the bush and stuff. And uh, this to set to set the scene. I'll let you listen to the sermon first, and then we'll dissect it. Um, to set to set the scene, um, it's a funeral, and someone's died. And Taika, um, who has this bit part in this film. Um, Gives, gives the sermon as an Anglican minister, so you can, you can have a little listen and then we'll dissect it from there. You know, sometimes in life, it seems like there's no way out. Like a sheep kept in a maze designed by wolves. And you know that if you're ever in that situation, there are always two doors to choose from. And through the first door, oh, it's easy to get through that door. And on the other side, waiting for you are all the nummiest treats you can imagine. Fanta, Doritos, LMP, Burger Rings, Coke Zero. But you know what? There's also another door. Not the Burger Ring door. Not the Fanta door. Another door that's harder to get through. Guess what's on the other side? Anyone want to take a guess? Vegetables? No. Not vegetables. No. You will think Jesus. 
I thought Jesus the first time I, I, I come across that door. Not Jesus. It's another door. And guess what's on the other side of that door? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. It's tricky like that, Jesus. So let us pray to Jesus, please, to make it a bit easier to get through those doors and to find you and your bounty of delicious confectionery. Thank you, Selena. Take it away. That's my favourite bit. That's why I left it in. Um, the clip keeps going for a bit because I couldn't stop it any earlier than this, but you don't actually need this exit scene. So... You may have <laughs> you may have missed it, but um, this is actually a brilliant explanation of Ricoeur's second naivety. Um, those of you who have studied philosophy and theology might recognize it. Um, Taika, wonderful theologian. Um, there's always two doors, and on one door, if we look the slide, um, is the Namia Streets. Fanta... Doritos, LMP, Coke Zero. There's three fizzy drinks in there, which is a really, really Māori approach to um, Namia streets. Massive, massive on fizzy drinks. Um, and, and, and we could look at that as, as, as kind of shallow joy, a shallow meaning, a shallow engagement, a consumeristic look at Christmas, which, you know, is what we're all primarily exposed to. Um, but for many of us, um, we hope, that there's something more. Some of us, um, through life circumstance, through loss or grief, grief, um, through an experience of meaninglessness, or we're pushed to explore the second door. We've eaten all the confectionery we can um, and are hopeful that there's something else. We've found it empty. And so we approach the second, second door, which we hope is Jesus, not vegetables. Um. And in our search through the second door, we're hoping for an engagement, next slide, with deep meaning. That in the story, in the, um, in the Advent story in Christmas, that there's actually something more than Fanta and Doritos and LMP. Um, but all too often, we find that through that second door, next slide, that all we can... <laughs> All we find is this, which is cute but ridiculous, that when we look past the consumeristic version of Christmas, we find this kind of insipid um, stamping cattle, um, lovely manger scene, which is a lovely children's story, but doesn't really seem to mean very much. And if we go next slide. Um, What... (laughs) What we end up with is this kind of kitsch emptiness that the Jesus bit of the story has kind of been stripped of all meaning as well. Fortunately, for those of you wondering, next slide, there's another door. (laughs) And this door is harder to get through. Um, that That one also doesn't have vegetables behind it. You would think that. I thought that the first time I went to go through it. Um... 
So we can either stagnate in, and, and kind of like go back to the nummiest street store and have a shallow engagement with Christmas, which is fine and fair enough. Um, but for many of us, we want, to push, we want to push through, and that's what we've kind of been trying to do as a community. It's called Second Naivety, to, to re-engage with the story and try and find the symbolic meaning of it, to dig a little bit deeper into Advent and try and engage with some of the danger and the risk and the subversiveness that lies in that story. And it's hard work. It's like we've had to do a bit of work as a community during the series to kind of get past our prejudices <laughs> towards the story and actually find something um, meaningful. And on the other side of that door, hopefully we've found Jesus. I love in Tychus' sermon how, like, he wants to find Jesus and his bounty of confectionery. Like, you, and this is the genius of the man as a theologian, is that you get Jesus and Namias treats. It's not kind of either or, but you can actually engage in both the kind of like shallow joy um, of Christmas, but also some depth and meaning as well. Um, so thank you, Taika, for that profound um, exposition of the Christmas story. Uh, so what we're hoping for is that we find on the other side of that second door, once we've dug a little, some, something of true meaning and goodness. Yeah. So we are going to retrace our steps this morning very briefly and, um, and hope to, um, yeah, polish up some of the treasures that were found during this. And I have kind of got like a bit of a summary of some of the stuff that we've talked about, but if you have something to add this morning that, um, that's really stood out to you, we'll give you the option first to um, um, see if you can jog your memory and see what you've come out with as well. So I'm going to quickly skip through. We've done this primarily through looking at characters in the Advent story. Um, so you can have a look um, at the characters that we've looked at and see whether um, anything stands out. So the first, um, Rod talked at the very start about Mary um, and about how much she's missing from so many of the carols. Um, but her part is pretty major in the coming of Christ. Um, what words or ideas jumped out around Mary? This all will be a bit scattergun because most of you probably weren't here for most of these. So, you know, but if you were, if you did listen, you've got a great burden of responsibility upon you. Courageous. Yeah. Nurturing. This is, a, this is a sentence. This is good. I like sentences. Um, we spoke about Mary's song um, and how she did. Um, I think we were all quite impressed that she tended to, she got it. So there were those two lines about the oppressor and liberating and um, about lifting up the people who are oppressed. Um, very pieces of the literature. Other people remember much better than I do. But, yeah, I think we were all quite shocked that she got that um, got what the kingdom would look like here and now in her song um, and that she was part, you know, actively part of that. And that's something that, um, yeah, I think we've really given much time to this week. So. Yeah, awesome. Any more? Right, yeah. So Mary took an enormous risk um, to have Jesus. And um, in a culture and context where w- women's actions aren't really highlighted as brave. Um, this is an amazing um, spotlight in the Advent story on um, humanity, but particularly women's participation with um, actions of justice, with um, 
with God's action. Um, in Mary's story, we see bravery in the face of danger. We see a woman on the margins who took a radical and sacrificial step for the sake of her people. In the incarnation, we see God's refusal to solve the problem through violent overthrow, which everyone thought was how God acted. But instead, we see that God acts in and through humanity, often through the marginalized, often through those considered as weak. Um, We see that God's committed to inviting us to participate in making the world whole. And Mary stepping up to participate, to actually giving her body over for the sake of her people, for giving her reputation over for the sake of her people. And that's a profound challenge for us who value individual freedom as being kind of um, one of our highest goals, to actually give ourselves over for something, um, something so restrictive. And we looked at Mary's song, as Jenny touched on, which is the next slide. Um, and ask the question of whose side are the gods on? The popular belief of the day is that the gods were on the side of the powerful, that the gods had structured the universe in a particular way and it wasn't to be moved, that the powerful were at the top for a reason, that the poor were down the bottom for a reason. And to resist that was, was resisting the gods, was going against the arc of the universe. Um, and the challenge in here in the story is that actually God wants to set the world right that injustice is not okay, that we shouldn't be complacent, that we can't use um, our privilege as an excuse that, you know, we were meant to be here and others were meant to be where they were, but that the universe isn't actually a triangle with some destined to be on top and others destined to be trampled down below, but the universe is actually, the arc of the universe is actually a circle, um, that we're invited, that everyone is invited into the center, that God in this action has invited all to the table to participate in his community. The way the universe was seen in that day was stasis, was that everything should stay the same. That's the way it's destined to be. It's amazing that now we see the universe um, as changeable, as flexible, as going somewhere. Um, that's, a, that's a new idea. And it's one that we've become so familiar with that we don't even see how radical it is sometimes, that we should be agents for change, that we're invited to not sit with things as they are, but to actually take up the cause um, of those with less. Um, We also trace the novel idea that all humans were created equal. Uh, Again, something that we just assume to be true, but for thousands and thousands of years in Western culture, Um, was anything but. There was a very strict hierarchy about who had value and who didn't. If you had a disabled child, um, you could leave it in the forest without guilt because it was destined for not much use anyway and was of lesser value. Now we'd rightly um, condemn any such action. So in this story... um, We see these acts of radical bravery, of um, a cry for justice. We see see God hearing the cry of the outsider and the poor. Um, We looked at the Magi, um, which Rod explored, and he talked about um, kind of the Christian paranoia around um, um, people outside of, um, of Christianity 
I'm speaking into Christmas and the paranoia that they don't really understand. Um, Rod challenged us to look at um, the Magi as outsiders who got something and that their perspective, um, that they saw the king, they saw Jesus for who Jesus was before just about anybody else and risked their lives to notice that. And uh, Rod read from Michael Chabon, a, a secular Jew, um, and looked at some of the richness that outsiders can give to the story that, um, that unless we have ears to hear, that we can easily miss stuff um, and that we don't, own, we don't own the story. We don't have exclusive rights to it that we um, can learn from others in this. Um, week after that, we looked at the shepherds. Um, does anyone have anything to say about the shepherds? <laughs> does anyone remember anything in our discussion of the shepherds? Ben didn't like them. Oh, nobody liked them. Yeah. And do you have anything to add to that? No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, um, the past one, he'd fallen into a hole and he was obliged to help them. Yep. And that goes for today as well. So that's our take-home. That's our take-home message today. If you see a shepherd in a hole, go and help them. Yeah. Any more with shepherds? It was interesting how they uh, signaled the glory, and they were, as you know, we we see now historically, they were really sort of laying the Bible out there for them to see how they could make it. Um, but they signaled the glory to Mary, and they sort of helped plant that seed in her mind. And how that revolution was happening and that revolution was passed from there. And I just think applying that today, <laughs> like I remind myself and I think, oh, I need to do that because that's not just a regular looking at Jesus Trump voter. Those that are, you know what I'm saying? Like let's not just cut. And I think that's where we've done made mistakes before by just, oh, they're idiots, they're just, you know, and it's like, how dangerous is that word? But how can we still do that today? Yeah, yeah so we talked a lot about disgust and about how the shepherds would have, um, the idea of them being included in a story with Luke's cross-contaminating here. He's deliberately bringing Jesus holy, clean, together with outsider, marginalized, unclean, disgusting. Shepherds um, were social pariahs. They were untrusted. They were deemed untrustworthy. They smelled. They did a dirty, impure job. They were deemed as stupid. So on so many levels, they were outsiders to any kind of narrative embraced by the hierarchy. And yet Luke puts them in this story, and they are the ones who announce that Jesus is to be Messiah. And there's this cross-contamination going on here that carries on in the message of the church that we can never value our own purity and our own um, pride um, over care for and inclusion of margin, the marginalized, the outsider. Um, and in it, we must recognize ourselves that we too are outsiders and that they too are loved. And... Um, there's this profound challenge in here to look in the face of those who disgust us, for those who we find shameful, for those who we find uncomfortable, for those we would make our enemies, for those we would rather ignore, 
and find the humanity in them and look deeply into our antichrist, <laughs> that impulse of disgust actually is. And for me, like talking, like doing some reading around this one as I sat with that for this week was just like a really, really pointy, pointy reminder <laughs> of how comfortable I am with my own people and how difficult I find um, it to embrace and include those outside of that circle. Uh, Rod talked about um, the massacre of the innocents. Um, yeah, this is, this is a really challenging week. Was, was it last week? Yeah, yeah. Does anyone have a memory of last, of last week? <laughs> We're upping the chances here as we get closer and closer to today. Anything last Christmas? It all fits for a dark Christmas. <laughs> of course, we have to have a massacre in it. Um, I just, <clears throat> I remember how he talked about how, uh, I can't remember which person in authority it was. Was it the Pope or the King? Painted all the children out of the story and replaced them with animals. But there was another version of the story with the children. And then Rod put up a close-up of one of the babies being slaughtered and then just left it there for the last 15 minutes while he spoke. And we just had to look at this, like, this face of this baby facing its death. Uh quite confronting um, and interesting how how much we are, we just want to paint this so easy to paint baby out when it's not happening in front of you. Talked about how the atrocities and also miracles happen while everyone else is going about their business. You know, for most people born wouldn't have changed anything in their day-to-day lives um, and for a lot of people the, the massacre of the babies wouldn't have changed anything either and it just happened um, it's been personal tragedy for those involved but this is just one among many that defines their power and pushes their power um, and how that trend goes on today no one wants to as a tyrant or as a bad person or as a, a, a racist or whatever. But, you know, we all walk the path of it to varying degrees and help or don't help to varying degrees. And, you know, Australia is doing stuff at the moment and as we enjoy our Christmas, other people are going to be not Uh, the image that really struck me from last week was um, of Herod going to his parents at night and tucking them in um, and just thought of him saying, you know, I did them today to protect you. Um, and I wondered about his sons. I wondered if they grew up and then understood what had happened and if they felt guilty about it or, or if they saw it as a necessity. I, I wondered a lot about how um, they dealt with that. Um, yeah, and I... Uh, Again, the parallel with um, Tony Abbott or Tyndall talking to their kids and saying, you know, I, I'm doing this. And that sort of attitude um, 
that introduction from we are we have to hurt others um, or get to know yeah just the idea that's how comfortable we are with the idea of collateral damage mm. Um, the world we participate continu in continues to treat the vulnerable as expendable. And the story, this Advent story, is a, it's a, it's a challenge. We can't, we can't engage with it or encounter it without facing that fact <laughs> that we still consider some people to be more expendable than others. And in the story, the church has long recognized that there's a, the cry of the poor is heard by God. The cry of the voiceless. They're only voiceless to us. They're not voiceless to God. And God continues to put God's self in the picture and be the defender of the poor. Again, all the time, a massive about turn on what the gods actually cared about. Um, Russell, in his beautiful communion piece um, of Candles and communion amongst rubble. Um, read a poem about choosing life, about refusing to give in to death, and about how difficult that is. Um, it reminded me of this quote by um, Black American theologian um, Woody James Jennings, um, who says, "Joy is is resistance to despair in all its signatures, in all the ways which it wants to drive us towards death and make death the final word." Death not just as the end of life, but in all its signatures, violence, war, debt, and all the ways in which life can be strangled and presented to us as not worth living. Joy is an act of resistance. And just thinking about singing carols this Christmas about um, holding together darkness and light. Um, and carols, the good carols anyway, not the crap ones, the good carols, are resist, they're resistance songs. Their song saying, we choose life over death. We will continue to foster the weak and the innocent. We will continue to include. We'll recognize God's action. Um, we, won't, we won't give in to despair, and we won't give in to inactivity, and we won't give in to, um, to just mourning and sorrow, but we will also sing of life and of light and of goodness, and we'll cling to it, and we'll continue to um, protect the gentle flame of life and light as we celebrate Christmas. And looking back at Advent as a, as a story of resistance from beyond, um, it's reaffirmed that this for me is something I want to live by. This is a story that I want to foster in my life because I think it makes me something better than I'd otherwise be. Um, I think about Hemi and Rod and I have had long chats about the complications of the idea of Christianity and children and how much, how difficult we find that idea of raising children in a faith. But we've decided that if, you know, of anything, if Hemi could grow up to be anything, I hope that the story sings through his life the story of inclusion and resistance to death, of 
hearing the voices that are ostracized of resisting the impulse to just enact collateral damage for his own comfort. Um, this idea of bravery for something that is deeply meaningful. The idea that the world hasn't been structured in a way where it's okay for those at the top to do what they want to those at the bottom, but that actually the very arc of the universe is bent towards something else and that God and light and justice will, will prevail. Um, I, this year, I think I'll find it easier, and hopefully you will too, to sing carols. Thanks.